The people are asking me, for God's sake, all over the place, are, are the troops coming in? They're dying for them. They have confidence in the troops. This is the normal banner which uh, British troops always carry on internal security operations, and the gist of what they say is, uh, disperse or we will fire. I can see a generation being blasted into bitterness. Youngsters growing up, they'll, ne they'll, they'll never forget this. Hello, this is James Hurst in for Kate Jabot with this special edition of SITREP. It is 50 years since the British Army deployed to Northern Ireland in response to sectarian riots on the streets of Londonderry and Belfast. That deployment was called Operation Banner. Op Banner, as the army came to call it, was the longest ever continuous operational deployment of troops in the history of the British Armed Forces. We will hear today from, among others, a veteran of Northern Ireland, the Defence Secretary, and as always, our Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. But first, Gisela Waldron looks back at how it began. On the 14th of August 1969, the British Army was deployed to Northern Ireland. Two days earlier, riots had begun after the annual Apprentice Boys March in Londonderry. After several days of what became known as the Battle of the Bogside, the Royal Ulster Constabulary was at breaking point and there were calls for the army to step in and help. I've asked the Prime Minister, uh, on behalf of the people here, to send in troops today because the people here are in a state of absolute panic. What sort of reception do you think the troops would get in this district? Oh, excellent. The people are asking me, for God's sake, all over the place, are, are the troops coming in? They're dying for them. They have confidence in the troops. That was Dr William Philbin, a Catholic bishop, speaking to the BBC at the time. His pleads didn't go unheard and the acting chief constable of the RUC, Sir Graham Shillington, and the influential West Belfast political leader, Jerry Fitt, agreed the police could not contain the violence. The then Home Secretary, Jim Callaghan, agreed to send the troops in. At the time, they were welcome. Well, the soldiers are here now. What do you think about it? Well, I don't mind the soldiers so much because at least we know that they're, you know, they're not is this an end to the petrol bombs? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yes. yeah, there's there. The army's task was to keep the fighting factions of Protestants and Catholics apart. Your men are now standing round barricades in the streets. Under what circumstances will they move into the bog side? Uh, I have no orders on that aspect at all. They're carrying guns. Under what circumstances will they shoot? Uh, they will only shoot in extremis, which is in the. Uh, can be, can be interpreted generally uh, in the protection of, uh, of life. How many men have you in Londonderry? Uh, approximately 500. Do you think this is enough to handle the situation? As it is at the present, yes. As a final question, Colonel, your men are carrying banners which are keeping rolled up. What do these banners say? Uh, this is the normal banner which uh, British troops always carry on internal security operations and the gist of what they say is uh, disperse or we will fire. Uh, this is a warning which has, uh, by law, to be given before we can even uh, think of opening fire. They will fire to kill? Uh, yes. Within weeks of being welcomed by nationalists, the soldiers became a target for the IRA. The rules of engagement were unclear. The levels of violence had no precedence in the army's experience as an aid to its own civil power. At the time, Methodist Minister Reverend Eric Gallagher had concerns for the future. This thing is just beyond description. I can see a generation being blasted into bitterness. Youngsters growing up, they'll, ne they'll, they'll never forget this. They'll never forget the homes they've lost, the people they've lost. Uh, I, I just can't find words to, to describe the agony of, the, uh, of this week.
More than 300,000 troops were deployed to Northern Ireland as part of Operation Banner, which continued until the summer of 2007. During that time, 1,441 died on deployment. 772 of those were killed by paramilitary attacks. Gisela Waldron looking back at the origins of Op Banner. Uh, Christopher Lee, our defence analyst with us as always. Christopher, just explain the politics of the time. How was the decision to make to send in the army made? You've got to go back a couple of years because if it, it wasn't suddenly riots in the streets and that was it. There were reasons for it. In the previous year, for example, there had been a new uh, idea about housing and the, uh, the, the Irish Catholic population said we are not being given public housing at the rates we should be and it, the distribution was wrong, etc. And that was the sort of thing that could set off some sort of riot. Well, the riots began and there were three elements of it. There was the, there was the elements of the, the political element which says no, no, everybody ought to be quiet, etc. And, and control themselves and, and we, we will sort this out. And of course they weren't going to sort this out because they hadn't got the means to sort it out. There was also the RUC, which was very small. The Royal United uh, Conservatory was, was, was very small, also Conservatory. There was also something called the B-Specials, and these were uh, part-time uh, police constables, mm-hmm. uh, all almost exclusively Protestant and troublemakers. I mean, there were, there were stories about them sealing off streets, Catholic streets, and then the Catholic homes would be torched at night with the furniture and the people were told to keep, to keep moving. That was the size of it. So I'm sitting in a cafe, uh, with a West Belfast MP called Jerry Fitt, who's quite mm. famous in those days. And he's carrying, for example, he's carrying his own uh, automatic, which he puts on the table. Now, I have never... That was the sense of the times that uh, a, an MP would be carrying a weapon. And, and was this after the army had been sent in or before? No, this was before. And he and, and, and the deputy uh, 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 chief constable, Graham Shillington, uh, talking... And they said, we cannot control this because the RUC is going to lose it. So Jerry Fitt telephoned the then Home Secretary, James Callaghan. Now, to give you another idea of what it was like in the streets in those days, he called James Callaghan, no, no, no mobile phones, forget, remember, he called him from a betting office. Now, the reason for that, it was the only place they had, as it would be in Ireland, yep. it was the only place they had working telephones. And he called, Graham, uh, he, he called him and said, listen, the... Uh, You've got to be able to send the army in. Persuade Harold, that was Harold Wilson, to send the, uh, send, send the army in. They've got to be able to control this. And Jim Callaghan said, yeah, I can persuade Harold, but I know what he'll ask me is, we'll send them in. How do we get them out? Well, because this was my question. Presumably, n- nobody, when they, they made this decision to, to, to send people in, nobody expected it to, to, to last for what the best part of... 40 years. W- w- was there any time frame originally? No, there wasn't a time frame and also it was the whole thing was completely perplexing because don't forget this is a British government sending in soldiers to part of the United Kingdom I mean that hadn't been done since the 17th century and the Civil War uh, and it was it was totally it was totally out of anybody's reach. There were no there were no uh, protocols for it. Nobody had worked out. Okay, we're going to be here for six months, three months, four months, or or four years. Nobody knew that. There weren't even any rules of engagement. Most important, nobody knew what to do when they got there. We will come to that later in the program. Very quickly, one last question: the name Operation Banner. Where did that come from? Because we heard it came in- from a list. 
It, it, there was a list in the MOD. So nothing to do with the banners that we heard No, being it, it's, it's a lovely piece of irony, but it, it came from a list. OK. Uh, we'll come back to those rules of engagements a little bit later. But uh, as Operation Banner is remembered, commemoration events have been taking place to mark the half-century since British troops were deployed to Northern Ireland. Now, yesterday, thousands of people attended a service of remembrance uh, at the National Memorial Arboretum in Staffordshire, among them the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace. He laid a wreath and he later talked to our reporter Sean Grezchek about his time as a soldier in the Scots Guards when he served on Op Banner. It was of the British Army doing what it does best, which is being a professional. You know, I remember quite a lot, all the very good people, even in nationalist and republican areas, who didn't think violence was the solution, who wanted to support good security, who helped us. That's what I sort of remember on a day like this. And I remember that overall it was a success, that when I came back in 1994, the first ceasefire happened and, you know, there was talk about decommissioning even then and what would the IRA do in the future. So that's what I remember today. And I remember my soldiers and the soldiers I worked with who lost their lives on those tours. And I think that's what, you know, today is about. It is about celebrating the most successful probably post-war op banner, uh, you know, deployment we had. It ended up in a political solution predominantly the defeat of the IRA and other terrorist organisations, and I think it was worth it. In terms of historical allegations that some veterans are facing, you've said that those who served in Northern Ireland should not face any future probes unless new evidence comes to light. But if soldiers who served did commit crimes back then, shouldn't they go to court for it? Well, the key is new evidence and not fishing. We've had police ombudsman's investigation that have usually proved to not have any material new evidence. You know, we don't want ambulance chasing lawyers and fishing expeditions. What we want is if someone has some solid new evidence, then of course, you know, no one is above the law. We are the British Army. The values we stand for is what we go to fight around the world. And that means we uphold those values. So, look, but, but I think we should reflect on the tens of thousands of people who deployed in our banner. They all upheld the law, and in fact, they defended those people who couldn't defend themselves. And I think that is what we should be really proud about, and 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 we we absolutely got to deal with the legacy issue. We absolutely, but every soldier I served with, you know, we went and did the right thing and followed the law and protected people, and that's what we uphold. What precisely are you going, are you going to do to stop veterans facing any new claims? And what about those veterans who are in the middle of court cases at the moment? Well, the ones right now in the middle of a court case, there is an independent judiciary. You know, we have a separation of powers between government and the law. We can look at future legislation, and right now the Northern Ireland Office and the government is looking at new legislation around the legacy. That is currently in consultation within government. So that's the, the first thing, and that's what we're all effectively trying to deal with. The secondly is the question of the inquest, which is actually the vast majority of what we're seeing with veterans being contacted. Those are inquests into state killings and that, that we've seen being piled through by the Northern Ireland Attorney General as it was then when I was the minister into the inquest. And, you know, we need to make sure that our veterans know their rights. You know, I, I had a constituent the other day who was sent a letter by the coroner's service in Northern Ireland didn't tell them their rights at all, didn't tell them they didn't have to actually respond or they do or what was going to happen to their data. So we have to uphold the rights of our veterans, protect them, help them in the support if they have to go to Northern Ireland, but at the same time talk about how these investigations have been conducted. You know, do they have to have knocks on the door in the middle of the night? I mean, these some of these guys are in their 70s and 80s. What What is the threshold for new evidence? All that is a discussion that we need to have and all of that is the best way of upholding, you know, the, the record that we did, but at the same time, if there has been 
if someone has actually broken the law and there's been real, real new evidence presented, then we can do something about it. And just finally, um, you've not been in, in the job too long. Is this your top priority? Um, and when it comes to a no-deal Brexit, are troops uh, ready for a no-deal? Well, on the no-deal Brexit, troops are ready. You know, we have a pretty long record of, you know, moving troops to task, of contingency planning. You only saw recently the, in Derbyshire, the Chinook helping, you know, protect that village. That is our bread and butter as Britain's armed forces. So we are ready for Brexit. Uh, we will be able to mitigate many of the impacts that people feared. The change of government, the change in the Chancellor, uh, I think means we're in a much stronger place to do that. Uh, top priorities, I have, I'm afraid, a number of top priorities on my desk. One is the proper funding of the armed forces. You know, let's remember, you know, we're not free. We, we, we cost a lot of money to deliver the best service in the world, to protect our shores, protect our interests abroad. Uh, and that's why I've got to make sure that in the next few weeks, I have a strong conversation with both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor to try and achieve that funding. So the next generation of soldier has the best kit, has the best training uh, and support that they can when we deploy them to keep us safe, which is what we owe them at most. Are you confident the new Chancellor will give more money for defence? I'll do my very best to get it. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace talking there to Sean Grezcheck. Let's uh, bring in at this point Richard White, former Royal Marine, now BFBS archive researcher. You deployed on a relatively short notice basis to Northern Ireland in the 1980s, late 80s, 87 was it? Yes, in 1987 uh, I just completed training and uh, came out of training with the Royal Marines and joined 4-2 Commando. Uh, and we got sent straight away on an emergency to, to Fermanagh. How much um, notice did you get? Uh, it was a matter of weeks. Right. We did get some training in that time, though. Uh, so I just joined my rifle troop, which is part of K Company, and we were out on the ground. And it's a, a rural environment in Fermanagh. So mm -hmm. if you think about Northern Ireland, there's the sort of conflict that took place on the streets in the cities where, you know, there was much more rioting. And then on the other side of it, there was the kind of the rural cat and mouse um, ambushes, booby traps, hedgerows kind of along the border with Southern Ireland. And so how was it was what two months you were out there yes that's what, correct, what, yeah. what are your memories of it was it was it busy was it kinetic uh it wasn't kinetic but i had the feeling when we were there that um you know the royal marines are highly professional you've got a commando unit you're putting on the ground that's additional to the troops that are already there and i think the locals actually appreciated that to an extent because it was relatively quiet i think they liked it to an extent because uh they knew that the, the IRA were less able to move freely and do the carry out the activities that they wanted to just due to the sort of professionalism of the troops that were working on the ground there. Fresh out of training how did you feel when you were told you were going to Northern Ireland? Um, uh, it was it was a surprise um, I kind of went and I just had to try and sort of integrate into my troop um, where I was the, obviously the liability they were sort of like a highly bonded troop and they just had this new guy inserted with them but um but it was okay yeah i mean it was yeah you know. christopher 1987 richard went out there on a as he said effectively an emergency deployment what was what was the situation in the late 80s how had it moved on from what we were talking about at the very beginning 50 years ago uh, the biggest difference you would find it with what starting let's start starting out in the late 60s and the 70s 70s early 70s were bad this was the time of uh, of, of uh, Bloody Sunday, of Motorman, etc., and it was it was a, it was big violence. 
what we were seeing in the 80s was far more of proactive uh, uh, violence, proactive violence. In fact, I'm not sure that we'd just seen before you went out, uh, Richard, uh, quite a sort of activity from from the SAS where they'd taken out uh, an IRA squad, hadn't they? Uh, yeah, that's correct. Uh, just before I went out, the reason that we deployed um, was because Lock Gaul took place, which was a effectively an, uh, two IRA active service units uh, did an attack on a police station mm-hmm. where they had a bulldozer with an explosive in the, in the bucket, and um, they basically got ambushed after they detonated their explosives. They were ambushed by the SAS, and eight members of the pyro were killed. And that was... And that was probably the biggest hit that the provisional IRA ever took in the whole 40 years in one go. Final thought for this section from you. I asked you how you felt before you went out. How did you feel when you came home? Did you feel different? Um, I did feel different. Um, It was quite short and sharp, but, uh, you know, it was uh, an interesting experience. Uh, You know, we came back, everybody came back from my tour, so from the Royal Marines. Still to come, the General and the Special Advisor reflecting on Operation Banner. Let's talk now about the rules of engagement. Laura Macon Isherwood has been discussing this with the former Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Mike Jackson. He served as a captain with 1st Battalion, the Parachute Regiment in Londonderry on Bloody Sunday. To the British government's great credit, or whatever, Hugh, all down these years, um, they broadly stuck with the criminal law as the legal response uh, to the uh, insecurity. Um, It's true there was an Emergency Powers Act which gave the soldiers um, some limited powers, uh, the right to stop and search, the right to search property, the right of arrest, which some will see as pretty radical stuff to give soldiers these powers. But I would argue that it was a measured response. So we had the law as it was, um, and still is, broadly speaking, um, um, uh, which allows any citizen, uh, not just a soldier, and and there was nothing here in particular, to... uh, uh, have the right of self-defence. Um, now, um, what does that mean? Um, well, the law is less than entirely precise in the matter, uh, with the greatest respect to the lawmakers, um, when it talks about reasonable force. What is reasonable? It's left to a jury. It's left to a jury to decide whether this or that action in the circumstances was a reasonable use of force. So what the Army Legal Service did was to take that very broad statement of law and translate it into a set of rules, um, not with the force of law, but with the force of military discipline, um, into the so-called yellow card, which laid down um, the circumstances in which a soldier may use force, including uh, opening fire. And that yellow card has then been used as the example for future battles, hasn't it? Well, um, it was... um, It stood the test of time, shall we say. It was modified from time to time, depending on the circumstances. 
I mean, for example, there was um, uh, quite a, a heated debate about what should be the army's response to somebody using petrol bombs, which can be, of course, lethal, and they can burn you to death. Um, is the use of lethal force by the army justified in, those, in such a circumstance? And um, the answer was, at the end of the day, yes. You talk about those kinds of petrol bombs. Obviously, soldiers were subjected to yeah. a large amount of abuse. Yes. Yeah. And there were a lot of deaths. I think in a report that you wrote in 2006, you said 697 British soldiers were killed by terrorists between 1969 and 2006. Yeah. That's a huge number. It is a huge number. And one forgets, I think it was 1971, 160-something were killed in one year. One of the deadliest days for the British Army was the Warren Point yes. ambush. Yes. You arrived shortly after that yes. ambush, didn't you? Can you talk about what happened there? What did you find? Well, um, the IRA um, clearly put a lot of thought into this uh, uh, attack um, with uh, the use of two bombs, the second quite cunningly thought through as to what might be the army and the police's reaction, where would they go? Uh, and tragically, their appreciation of what the reaction would be was accurate, and the second bomb um, was very effective. I mean, one's got to admit that uh, uh, it was a clever plan, and um, it succeeded. Um, yes, and it was pretty traumatic stuff. Mm. What did you encounter when you arrived there? Oh, mayhem. You know, um, burning vehicles, dead bodies, bits of bodies. It was unpleasant. And you had to identify one of your friends, didn't you? I did. Mm. Which sounds absolutely horrific. There wasn't very much left of him. Does that kind of thing mark you for the rest of your life? I hope not mark me, but um, um, I certainly don't forget. And in fact, I'm going to Warren Point quite shortly, where there is to be a commemoration, because it's um, um, 40 years on. More recently, a lot of the focus has been on the families of civilians that yes. are alleged to be innocent, uh, the, those lives that were lost. Yeah. You've had to give evidence yourself, haven't you, at yes. various inquests, the Ballymurphy one yes. most recently. Yes. What is it like standing there, you know, seeing the victims' families and maintaining that what the soldiers did, what you oversaw, was correct? You know that it is in your mind. It must be tricky seeing those people across the room, though. Yes, it's, it's, it's not comfortable because they suffered uh, a most terrible loss and... and one sympathises. I mean, I can't imagine losing a child, for example. Um, so, um, of course, um, uh, and for, for many of the families I uh, no doubt represented everything they loathed about um, being part of the United Kingdom, because that's not what they want. Um, but we are where we are. Um, uh, and I hope in some ways at least that 
this drawn out on an agonizing legal process uh, at least gives some closure to those who have lost family or friends. Was it worth it? I hope so. Gosh, yes. General Smoke Jackson talking to Laura Macon Isherwood. Um, Richard White, before you deployed, how much were you told about rules of engagement and how much of it actually stuck with you? Um, well, the few weeks I spent before we left, uh, we were trained at um, Lydenhithe in Kent um, by the NITAT, which is Northern Ireland Training and Advisory Team. And there we went through a whole load of different scenarios where we had rioting, we had a village that we patrolled around and things like that. And, and during that time, we were told basically it... Um, it is, it's in self-defense or to prevent the harming of life. That's, you know, you have a card alpha or a yellow card as they refer to it there. Um, and literally, I think every time I've been on operations in the ground role, I've had to carry that card. And any time that I carry a weapon, I carry that card. I mean, did you feel adequately prepared? Um, in, in, ter in terms of knowing? I did by that stage, but then obviously we continue to progress from that stage onwards. I mean, Christopher, the, the the whole situation you can you can have your rules, but the situation changes, and and you hear of those significant incidents like Warren Point. I mean, the the, the scale of the thing was ever evolving as a beast, wasn't it? Yes, it was, and don't forget that on the day of Warren Point, fourteen British soldiers were killed. Uh, so also assassinated was uh, uh, Lord Mountbatten uh, uh, of the royal family, which is the bit that got the headlines in the United Kingdom uh, newspapers. But it was that wide scale. There were people carrying out operations all over the place. Um, but it was this role of the army which was questioned, and yet the army needn't, didn't need to be reminded that its, its fundamental role uh, didn't change. It was known as an aid to the civil power. It wasn't the army based in Northern Ireland in in Lisbon, for example, it was mm. just came out of barracks and tried to sort this. This was a huge operation of 300,000 uh, soldiers, or largely soldiers, uh, went in at one time or another during that operation. And like so many military operations, people kept saying the only way to solve this is ultimately a political solution. One of those people was Jonathan Kane, uh, who spent many years working on the Troubles in Northern Ireland. He was a special advisor at the Northern Ireland office in the 80s and 90s. He returned in 2010 to work under David Cameron. Now a member of the House of Lords, Baron Kane, told us that the British government in 1969 had no choice but to send in the troops. It's 50 years ago, um, and if you think back to that time, uh, the RUC was um, a very small uh, force. Uh, and so when, you know, rioting breaks out in um, Londonderry uh, and then in Belfast, you know, it simply did not have uh, the resource or the capacity uh, to deal with the, uh, deal with the situation, uh, frankly. Uh, so, you know, my, my take is that the government of the day, you know, had absolutely no choice. Uh, but to deploy uh, uh, the armed forces. But 50 years on, difficult questions still remain, including investigations of historic allegations. Uh, Baron Kane says he wants to find an alternative legal solution to prevent veterans going through repeated investigations. There is absolutely, you know, 
no moral equivalence at all between you know, a member of the armed forces or a police officer who um, you know, is doing you know, his or her duty to uphold the law, you know, uh, but in the course of that might discharge a firearm with possibly fatal consequences. No moral equivalence whatsoever between that and the action of a terrorist who deliberately sets out to murder, to take life. And I wonder whether there's a way of translating that moral distinction into law. Christopher, final thought. Britain's longest ever military deployment, and it was on UK soil. I, I, I sometimes wonder why we don't refer to this as a civil war. Um, because we don't do civil wars after the 17th century, because we know what happened after that. Now, it, 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 there was a problem. The civil war was just not a question of what was happening in Northern Ireland. The whole theme it's hard to say this sometimes, was Protestant versus Roman Catholic. And all the plans that were put up, all the plans that were put up by politicians, all had one theme. How can we get power sharing? This is people talking about the same thing today. Christopher Lee, thank you very much, and Richard White. I'm afraid that is all we've got time for. Any thoughts on today's programme, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter at BFBS SITREP. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. Just search for BFBS SITREP. Thank you for listening this week. I'm James Hurst, been with you for the last few weeks. Kate Chabot should be back at the usual time next week. Until then, bye for now. 